evening, Christ Church. It's uh, a privilege to be with you once again tonight, and uh, I, ho I hope and trust that all of us are grateful for uh, those who participated in uh, the Christmas pageant, and our gratitude goes to all of our young people who participated, did a great job, and also to our brother Prakash who put all of that together. Let me encourage you now to turn with me to Paul's epistle to the Romans and the 15th chapter I'm going to read in our hearing, verses 14 through 16. I uh, think that all of us as ministers, sometimes when we contemplate the preaching assignments that have been given to us, uh, I think if we're honest, we find that there are some passages of Holy Scripture that are rather intimidating to us, and we feel something of what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, and who is sufficient for our things? And then he's quickly forced to confess, but our sufficiency is of God. That's something of how I feel when approaching this particular passage so uh, I'm going to read it and uh, let us play, pay close attention to the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 15, beginning with verse 14. Hear the word of the true and living God. Paul says, I myself am satisfied or persuaded about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct or admonish one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace of God given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask all of us humbly for God's blessing upon the ministry of his word. Let's pray. O oh, Holy Father, we bow in your presence and we cannot begin as we ought to thank you for your, your holy word. And Father, as we come to it, we pray that you would be pleased to intervene and make up, O oh God, for any deficiencies in the one who seeks to minister it. And that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would bring glory to yourself as your word is proclaimed. Help us, Father, to focus upon what the Apostle is saying to us here. And, Father, particularly what you have said to us through the instrument of your Apostle. We pray, Father, that your word would be precious to our souls and that you would in turn enable us to make conscience of what we hear and to do so to your glory and to the good of your church. For we ask these things in the name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, even Christ Jesus, 
our Lord. I suppose that there are few periods in the history of the church that rival the richness of what we call the age of Puritanism, which took place from about the mid-1500s to the year 1700, when all of these men in England were writing and preaching with a concern for the gospel of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ. When you read the rich heritage of men like Thomas Manton, John Flavel, John Owen, John Bunyan, all of these great, uh, and there's so many more. I've only mentioned a few of the Puritans at that time. And while preparing for this particular sermon, I recall from the memoir of Thomas Goodwin, Goodwin, who lived from the year 1600 through 1680, was a Puritan who was appointed and served as one of the members of the Westminster Assembly, in which he participated as a prominent figure in the debates of that assembly. However, in his earlier years, while studying at Cambridge and preparing for the ministry, he confessed that he walked in the vanity of his mind, meaning that he was full of pride. And he said that his greatest ambition at that time was to become a great orator rather than a useful minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. But all of that began to change when he was actually converted at the age of 20. And without going into a whole lot of detail, he was leaning towards a very defective theology when he came under the influence of another very famous Puritan by the name of Richard Sibbs. And Sibbs is well known to students of the Puritans today and most noted perhaps for his works, The Bruised Reed and the Soul's Conflict. And it is said that on one occasion that Sibbs offered a word in season, indeed an admonition to Thomas Goodwin. Sibbs told Goodwin, he said, young man, if ever you would do good, you must preach the gospel and the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. That counsel, that admonition, if you please, was said to have been a nail in a sure place for Thomas Goodwin. And no one who has read any of, his, of Goodwin's works needs to be told how fully and magnificently he set forth the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we come this evening to our last exhortation in what we have been looking at as the One Another series. And here in Romans 15 and verse 14, where Paul affirms of these Roman Believers that they are able, and really the translation of the ESV at this point 
is not so well, which I'll explain shortly, is not really to able to instruct one another, but it's not the verb, common verb in the New Testament for teach, which is didesco, but rather it's the word nithateo, which means to admonish or to warn or to rebuke. And so in summary, uh, you'll remember that throughout these Sunday evening services, we have basically been examining these various disciplines, duties, and responsibilities that church members have one to another. And that is what the One Another series has been all about. We have seen that the one altogether encompassing duty we had to one another is expressed in that oft-repeated command, love one another, which Jesus gave to his disciples in John 13 and verse 34. And that particular command was the very first sermon covered in our series by Pastor Wagner. And that is our one supreme duty we have to one another, and the one from which, as we've observed, that all of these other one another duties flow. And we have been looking at, in this series, some of the various and manifold ways, then, in which these one another duties are to be fulfilled. Now then, as we begin to look carefully here at the apostles' affirmation to these Roman believers, and by extension unto us, let's look at the context of this statement, able to admonish one another, as we find it here at this point in Paul's epistle to the Romans. Verse 14 here is basically a pivotal point or pivotal transition in Paul's epistle to the Romans. The apostle has thus far set before us 11 solid chapters of instruction to the Roman believers. And he has proceeded from that in chapter 12, midway through chapter 15, by giving us some three and a half chapters of very practical instruction. And it is this point that he is about, it is at this point he's about to offer us his closing remarks then in the last one and a half chapters remaining in this epistle. And you'll notice that in verse 13 here of chapter 15, he sort of concludes his exposition and application with something of a benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, he says, in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And it's a wonderful capstone to his instruction that has gone before that he has given us. But then he pauses, you'll notice, by way of a minor digression here in verse 14, which is our text. And he's clarifying the boldness and the firmness with which he has given them his exposition and application. 
And it's as if he's been saying to the Roman believers, I know that I've been something of a straight shooter with you so far in this epistle. He says, I know that I have given you some rather substantial and profound doctrine to digest. And I've given you some difficult directives for you to pursue. But I'm concerned that you know that you're aware that number one, it has not been my purpose to belittle your understanding and faith, but rather Quite the opposite. And this is what verse 14, in a sense, is all about. For I myself am satisfied. And the verb there is really the verb that means to believe, or even more so, persuaded. I am petho, satisfied, or persuaded about you, my brothers, that you yourself are full of guilt, goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. And so he's telling them, in essence, that he sensed the freedom to be firm with them. And that's the reason for his having spoken to them so boldly. And so he, it's because of this confidence which he holds in his heart of what he knows to be true of them. It reminds me of that gloss by an ancient anonymous writer of the early church whom Erasmus designated because no one knew what his name actually was, but whom Erasmus designated as Ambrosiaster. Uh, and these are the comments, and shared this with the Sunday school class, but comments that Ambrosiaster made in the preface of his uh, commentary on the epistle to the Romans. He said that he, Paul, had no need to be angry with the Romans, though instead it says he praised their faith, particularly as they had not seen any signs that is of any miraculous powers, nor had they received their faith in Christ from any of the apostles. And so he says that God had worked to bring them to themselves. In verse 14, he says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace of God given me by God. And so he's saying, I've been bold because I know that you will not misunderstand me here. He says, you had the maturity to receive these things without thinking or ascribing the worst to me. And then number two, he says, I've been bold with you because of the deep respect that I have for you. You will remember that the, at the very beginning of his epistle to the Romans, that Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Why? Because your faith is proclaimed in the world. And so as he begins now to draw his epistle to a close, he wants to remind them that his regard for them has not changed or been altered in any way. And it, it rather, he says, it remains the same. 
What he has said to them in verse 8 of chapter 1 still stands. And it is this then he's saying that gives him the platform to be confident to believe that they, the Roman believers, are able to receive what he's saying. Now here in this text, please notice I think tonight in the second place, the, the commendations that the apostle makes of these Roman believers. First of all, notice the objects of his com commendation. He says, I myself am satisfied, persuaded about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. The apostle here is not singing, singling out or identifying any one class or group of people within the Roman church. And he is able to say that his objects of commendation are who? They are the brethren of the church at Rome. Generally speaking then, this church, according to the apostle, was marked by these various, very qualities that he observed in them. And then from the objects of his commendation, please observe also the basis for his commendation. It was the apostle's deep personal uh, persuasion that his commendation of them was warranted by the facts. By the use of this verb here, petho, or I'm persuaded, he could simply have said, I am satisfied or persuaded but rather, he uses a form of the verb that could be translated as, I have been persuaded, or I have been satisfied, or I have been made satisfied and remain satisfied. And then as, adds several words, I myself about you. Now, Paul, bear in mind, had not yet been to the church at Rome. Nonetheless, when you and I read the 16th chapter of this epistle, wherein Paul greets all of these various folk whom he knows are members in the church, apparently some of which with whom he has a very close acquaintance, his persuasion obviously came from what was made known to him by or by people who had persuaded him, and these people were embedded in the life of that church. So that the basis of his commendation rested not on the glib testimony that had come to the apostle from here or there or another place, but that there was a substantial basis from a broad perspective of Endpoint or spectrum of input to his own mind that this was true of these Roman Christians. But then please notice that he presents them with three commendations in verse 14. He notes, number one, that the brethren are full of goodness. Number two, that they're filled with all knowledge. And then number three, able to instruct or really admonish one another. 
So he says that they were all, first of all, full of goodness. Now we might describe that particular virtue in the following manner. It means something that is opposed to all that is mean and evil and includes uprightness, kindness, and goodwill. It is one of the ninefold graces of the fruit of the Spirit that you and I read about in Galatians chapter 5, particularly verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. It is a disposition that is negatively the opposite of evil or mean-spiritedness. And it includes uprightness, kindness, and goodwill. Now when he notes that they were full of goodness, the Apostle Paul was not saying that they could not grow in the grace of goodness. He is not saying that they could not increase in that grace, but rather that this grace was not present in an almost undiscernible manner, but that it had flourished to the point of obvious credibility. Moreover, he was persuaded that they were filled with all knowledge. And again, obviously, that doesn't mean that they had become semi-omniscient and knew everything about everything. But with respect to the, that knowledge regarding the gospel in terms of its objective content, along with its moral and ethical implications, they were not babes in the knowledge of the truth and in the ways of God. They had a clear understanding of the gospel, its ethical implications, so as to equip people for this duty of admonition. And once again, this did not mean that they had no room for growth. But in terms of their basic physical state, they were filled with all knowledge. And my own mind goes, for example, to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 14, uh, verses 12 through 14, where the writer to the Hebrews says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. In the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food, the writer states, is for the mature, that is for the full grown. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So it is more than having a head stuff stuffed with the objective facts of the truth of the gospel. Rather, it is a full head and a sensitive conscience as well as a cultivated awareness 
of the implications and the demands of the gospel in the heart and life of a true child of God. But then having considered the context and the apostles' commendation, I want us to look this evening more closely at the third commendation that the apostle sets before us this duty of mutual admonition that the apostle establishes here for the Roman church. And I want to spend the rest of our time looking at this. The apostle Paul is approaching, as I indicated, the close of this profoundly important letter Indeed, this masterpiece of exposition of the gospel of the righteousness of God extended to needy sinners in the person of Christ and received by faith alone. And the Apostle Paul says in our text, I myself am persuaded about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct or really admonish for the verb there is nuthateo one another now i hasten to note and this is important that when we look at this passage there is no exhortation in this text as such to be sure there is no explicit imperative or command in this verse Rather, Paul is simply disclosing a persuasion he has concerning this church. But in so doing, he is setting before them and us certain virtues in that church. And wherever in the scriptures the Holy Spirit is pleased to underscore virtues in an individual or in a particular church, those become the duty of all the people of God to emulate and to pursue by the grace of God that work which God is doing in us that, so that that particular virtue may become manifest in all the members of the church and that someone in seeing that virtue in us would commend us for that virtue. And surely, this is what the Apostle Paul meant when he says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 14, sure, he says, brothers, join in imitating me. And there he says, keep your eyes on, or some translations put it, mark those who walk according to the example you have in us. So the apostle commands us there to mark or to note, make note of those whom he mentions. But to what end does he tell us to mark them? Is it simply that we may admire these virtues in them? No. But that we are obligated to imitate the apostle. We are to imitate those so marked as living or walking according to this apostolic model. And this is precisely what happened with respect to the Thessalonian believers, where Paul could say to them in his first epistle to them, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, 
that our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in much assurance of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And he says, you know what manner of, manner of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you, Paul says, became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. For what purpose? Paul says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And so I trust all of us see the principle that where any spiritual virtue is manifested in a child of God or in a church of God and is underscored by way of praise to God or commendation to the people of God, that in turn becomes an imperative or command upon all the people of God, even if it is not explicitly stated to be so in the passage as the one we have before us this evening. And so I have no reservation in understanding our text according to the concept of a duty and that I am then operating within and according to the norms of Holy Scripture. Now then, as the apostle contemplates this particular persuasion, that has come to him regarding their goodness and regarding their knowledge, he says that these two things in combination renders them fit for this crucial one another ministry. And what is this one another ministry? It is admonishing one another. The verb that the apostle employs here, Nuthatao uh, is much more narrow in range than other words that we find commonly in the Bible for teaching, the dasko, or the exhortation, parakaleo. But this verb that Paul uses here with respect to the Roman believers is much more narrow in its significance. Originally, in terms of its etymology, this Greek word... And usually I don't do that, but I think it's necessary at this point. This verb is what we would call a compound word. It's made up of two words, nous, which means in the Greek the word for mind. And this second word is the verb to put or to place. So literally, this verb, this word nuthateo can be translated to put in mind. To put in mind. And um, we can see that it's given to us here for the sake of admonishing one another. And the way that the Apostle Paul uses it here with respect to the Roman believers means that. Hence, to put in mind means to put in mind like you would say to your child when you would remind them, for example, look, that stove is hot. Do not put your hand on the, bur on the burner. You're admonishing your child or you're putting your child in mind 
perhaps of something that you have previously warned them against. And it's an an admonishment to make one mindful then by means of warning, admonishment, rebuke, or counseling. Many years ago, uh, there was a man with whom a number of us are acquainted who wrote a book. It was published in 1970, and that book was titled Competent to Counsel. And it was written by a man that many of us know as Jay Adams. And that book, the title of that book, Competent to Counsel, is basically his translation of Paul's phrase here, able to admonish. And in that book, J. Adams sought to propose a more biblical approach to counseling, which he then called neuthetic counseling. And that was a transliteration of the verb netheteo. It is the verb used, for example, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 31, where Luke records the Apostle Paul as saying, after some three and a half years of ministry among them, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to what? To admonish or warn. There's our verb, nutateo, everyone with tears. That's the word that Paul uses, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, where he writes, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my dear children. And in summarizing then his ministry to the Colossians, he says that the Christ whom we proclaim, warning, nuthateo, everyone, and teaching, didasco, everyone that we may present everyone mature as full grown or, or full grown in Christ. Now, let me give a definition uh, of this admonition, and I'm indebted to others for this. This is not invented by David King. This matter of admonition is an appeal to the mind seeking to help another see the danger to which they're exposed, and by warning, admonition, and teaching, reminding for the purpose of seeking to lead them out of danger and into a place or condition of safety. That is what it means to admonish. Or as one lexicon defines it, it means to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. Therefore, admonish, warn, instruct. And based upon observation, I perceive then that a dangerous pattern, for example, in my brother or sister in Christ, in the life of another. And this observation has not come to me by way of rumor or by way of hearsay. It's something that I myself has per- have perceived in the life of another brother or sister. And so I draw near to that person with a heart full of what? Full of goodness. Full of goodness. Not with the heart of a Pharisee 
who is plagued with great beams of moral inconsistencies that are bulging out of his eyes that everyone can perceive and who is equipped, for example, with his own personal magnifying glass in order to locate and to detect a splinter here or a splinter there, scrutinizing each speck of moral, failure, of moral failure that he can possibly detect in another. No one is to come with a with a heart like that, but we're to come with a heart of goodness, joined to moral excellence. Indeed, one who is walking with a tender and a sensitive conscience before God and who recognizes that I am indeed my brother's keeper, that God has made us a member of the body of Christ, not simply to sit under the ministry of pastoral ministry ordained of God for the perfecting of the saints for the works of purpose. But I am placed in the body of Christ in order to minister by means of my gift to my brethren in seeking to warn, to teach, to admonish, reminding uh, my brothers and sisters, that I might lead one out of danger and into that place or condition of safety. And so Paul could say to these Roman believers who were far from perfect, consider all of the instruction that he had already given them thus far, especially with respect to the whole matter of what you and I may commonly call Christian liberty, as he does in chapter 14 of this epistle. Consciences were, that were not adequately informed about the nature of their liberty in Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, consciences that were insensitive about the exercise of that liberty. Don't exempt yourself, Paul is saying, from the duty of admonition because you have not acquired this status of a super saint. Paul did not restrict himself to saying, I am satisfied or persuaded that a few of you have been elevated by the grace of God to some unusual state of maturity. No, he is alluding then to this overall climate in which there was this evident virtue of goodness and knowledge of them. And Paul is persuaded that they're able or competent to admonish one another. Therefore, by way of implication, and I hasten on, let me ask you, if Paul was acquainted with our own assembly, if Paul knew all the members of Christ's church, and he was persuaded that his judgment such as this was well-founded. If he knew you as he knew these Roman believers, could the Apostle Paul have such a persuasion of you? Could he say of you that you are able to admonish one another? I'm persuaded that you're full of goodness. I'm persuaded that you're filled with all knowledge. And by way of instruction that you're able to admonish one another. Could he say that of you? 
And if not, why not? Dear people, let me say, you are a well-instructed people of God. It's possible that many of you here this evening do not yet grasp the level of how well you have been instructed, having been taught through books of the Bible by our other pastors, having been taught through the books of the Bible, passage after passage, line upon line, precept upon precept, year after year, you have set under capable, responsible expositors of the Word of God. And what you have received hasn't simply been floated by you as an impassionate intellectual exercise. No, there have been arrows and there have been thunderbolts that have penetrated your heart where you are and where you live and for what purpose. Not only that you might be full of knowledge, but full of goodness. And being full of goodness and knowledge, it is our duty to admonish one another in terms of this example of the Roman believers. And so I think it's in context with this special reference, which seems to be uh, in Thessalonians with the idleness or the disorderly of the brothers and sisters, Paul there admonishes them to work with their own hands. And that's the nature of the admonishment that takes, takes place, for example, in 2 Thessalonians there. So, brothers and sisters, let me say by way of conclusion that as we seek to engage in this one another ministry of admonishment, Please remember that every one of God's imperatives to us, and this is so important, is, is built upon the indicatives of God's grace. And you say, David, what do you mean by that? Well, this is what I mean by that. Simply this, that an indicative is simply a statement of what is. An imperative is a statement of what ought to be or what we ought to do. And none of God's imperatives then hang in thin air. They are built upon the indicatives of God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And on into chapter 8, you'll notice that Paul continues to say to these, these Roman believers as he reminds them of his tenderness in his heart towards them, that they have this privilege and duty, that they're competent to do it, able to admonish one another. And think of all the indicatives of God's grace that precedes this command in his epistle to the Romans. As Paul opens up to them, who and what they have by the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. A perfect righteousness. The, their union 
with the Lord Jesus Christ, that they have died in Christ from the reign and the dominion of sin. They have been raised, Paul says, to newness of life. And on in there to chapter 8, I want us to understand they are indwelt then by the person of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, by His power, they are to mortify, that is to put to death the deeds of the flesh, even a, bull a bullheaded resistance to admonition. And all of those grand indicatives of God's grace are beneath the imperatives that God requires of us. It reminds me of Augustine's exquisite prayer. When he cried out to God, he said, My whole hope is only in thy exceeding great mercy. Give what you command and command what you will. So then, inclusion to the, in conclusion to this whole series, as difficult as all of these one another biblical duties may seem to us, which we have examined in these past weeks together, know this, that there is no barrier whatsoever to the right and proper use of these one another ministries as we consider the amazing provisions of God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the gift and operation of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. May God grant us the courage of grace to confess, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let us pray.